Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we come to you this morning with thankfulness, realizing more and more that we can never navigate this world as your people without you, without your Son living in us, without the indwelling Holy Spirit, without your Word to be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lord, we have not been left alone. We know that even before your son left, he prayed for us that we may be kept in this world. And we pray this morning as we open your word that your word may continue to feed us on spiritual food that will enable us to walk and do more than just survive, but to indeed grow in this world. That we may be, may be lights and salt to a earth and a world that is dark. And may the saints be encouraged by the preacher. We pray this morning that you may keep us true to your word. Grant us listening and receptive hearts. May we be obedient to obeying your word and living according to what he teaches. We pray for your blessing upon the hearer and speaker alike this morning as we give you our thanks and save his name and for his sake alone. Amen. This morning we are going to return to Colossians. Uh, and we are going to go to chapter 2. And this morning we are considering some thoughts as Paul writes to the Colossian church, and we read what he writes in chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. But simply for a sense of what Paul is writing about and to give us a deeper understanding of where we will be going with subsequent sermons, let's read Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 8, and we'll read down to verse 15 this morning. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses, by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. May the Lord bless us this reading of his word, as he has done with those that's gone already here this morning. We won't be going through all of these verses. Obviously, there's a lot in these verses, and we do not want to rush through them. But I do want to get through verses 8 and 9 and 10 this morning as we prepare to preach to the others in coming weeks. And this morning, I want to divide my sermon into two parts. It's very simply this, captured by philosophy completed in Christ. The overall title 
of the sermon is Christ is all we need. And as we look at that, we want to recognize that we live in a world where we offer so many different things as substitutes for Christ. It's not a new thing. It's not something that is pertinent to only the 21st century church. The church has always been offered something that was alternative. And the Colossian church is no different. They are facing alternatives to Christ being all and in all for them. And so this morning, let's start by looking at what Paul says about them as they are being sought after by false teachers, captured by philosophy. And the first thing you want to look at when we look at this portion is the intention of the philosophers. Verse 8 says this, See to it that no one takes you captive. That's how the ESV renders that particular verse. In verse 6 and verse 7, Paul reminds the saints at Colossae about the continued walk in Christ Jesus the Lord. And we remind ourselves of the last sermon when he spoke to them about them having been rooted in him, having been built up in him and established in the faith. He now in verse 8 extends to them a command wrapped up in a warning, and that is beware. The ESV renders this with somewhat less urgency in stating, see to it. And this translation of the original word is correct. It correctly picks up on the sense of to see, to look at, to pay attention to. The Colossian church has been called to attention. But there's a way we, in this rendering, it misses out the implication of the apostle's command, which is more like watch out. Watch out. If you continue down this path, you will do yourself great harm. And in fact, the King James Version has perhaps a more appropriate rendition. It says, beware. Serious danger ahead. Beware. And even the word beware takes on its intensity from the context it's used in. We say beware and we look around for the danger, but depending on the danger, that beware could be more intense or less. A sign saying, beware hot stove, gets a very different response to a sign that says, beware of the dogs. Especially if they sits between you and two 60-kilogram Rottweilers only a single fence. The beware is very different. Ignoring the one may end up with a bent hand or finger. Painful but not life-threatening. Ignore the other and you will without a doubt end up on life support in the hospital or maybe worse. The, be- the, the intensity of the beware takes up its sense from what you are being warned against. Warning signs are critically important, and the level of warning increases depending on what's on the other side of the fence. And this is exactly the sense of Paul's warning in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. Beware danger ahead. Just what was the danger that the Colossian believers were being warned about? Well, that's what we need to consider this morning. They were to be aware lest they are captured. Or as the ESV states again, see to it that no one takes you captive. And despite the sound footing of the Colossian saints in in verses 6 and 7, it's clear from the warning in verse 8 that they were in danger of being captured if they let their God down. This is a warning to the Colossian church. It's a warning to every single church that worships a Savior who is all in all, 
We serve a God who is all-powerful, yet there is within us the, the, the propensity and the danger of falling down. And so we need to be beware, be careful, be observant. While being rooted and built up in Christ and established in the faith gave them every reason to be assured of their salvation, it did not give them reason to be complacent in their sanctification. There was danger of being taken captive. The phrase taken captive can have the sense of being taken as booty, taken as plunder, as spoils of war. Very often when a country is taken over by another nation, and certainly in a more uh, in antiquity where we see that was a little different to wars of today, we find that the winning, the supreme, the conquering nation goes away with booty. They take spoils of war. The Colossians were not in danger of being taken by force, which is how we usually think about plunder. The enemy they were being warned against is not coming in open conflict, not coming with battle lines clearly drawn. This being captive in Colossians has got a slightly nuanced meaning to it. If this was the case that they were going to be taken uh, in full-out war, the saints would have, been, would have seen them coming a mile off, so to speak. This was not a church that was weak. After all, this is a church that was bearing fruit as a result of responding correctly to the gospel, chapter 1, verse 6. This was a church that was actively loving other saints, chapter 1, verse 4. This was a church that had received Christ, and they were walking in Him. They were rooted and built up in Him. They were established in the faith, chapter 2, verse 6 and 7. And this was a church that was abounding in thankfulness. This church was not going to be taken by surprise. They were alert. But Paul says they need to be more alert than they, than they are. The enemy was coming at them, but this enemy was coming in a, in a non-violent way. And so as we see the intent of the, philosoph the philosophers was to take them, take them as captives, I want us now to look at how the philosophy is used to take them in a very insidious way. To all intents and purposes, this was a well-adjusted well church, I've just said that, which would have probably dealt with open heresy with defiance. But they were not being threatened with open warfare. They were being wooed subtly and surreptitiously. They were being slowly coerced without them even being aware of it. They were being lulled into a sense, or they would have been in danger of that, they have been lulled into a sense that there was no danger around. But there was danger. Not in their face, not openly, but danger was they in danger of things creeping in that would take them away from being founded and stable and, and secure in Christ. The New King James Version states it like this, Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. Beware, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. Instead of translating the original Greek word by the English word capture, can also be translated in this way, being made a victim of fraud. That is, instead of being taken by force, you can be taken by stealth. You can be taken in a way which you don't realize the enemy is already in with you. We're living in a time in the world where we've witnessed things taking place that's going to have a huge impact on eschatology as it, roll, as it rolls out. Right now, and I think of this, 
being unaware of the enemy living amongst you. And we look at the world, the changing face of the world, and take just for instance a country like Europe, where people have come in on, uh, the, on the basis of being refugees, and yet Europe is full with a hidden army, will one day turn, and the very people that thought they were welcoming in friends is going to find they've been in bed with the enemy. And without realizing it, things come in. And when the time is ripe for the enemy, the enemy strikes, and you are caught, or they will be caught unawares. This is entirely in keeping with the sense of Paul's warning, captured not by force, but by philosophy. Not just any kind of philosophy. Philosophy in the day of Paul was not necessarily a bad thing. And I'll show it to you shortly. Not just any kind of philosophy, but an empty, deceitful philosophy. That's what Paul says here. You will be captured by an empty, deceitful philosophy. The kind of philosophy would be empty since it is devoid of significant substance. And this philosophy is deceitful because it presents itself to be something which it is not. And if the Colossian church let its guard down and allowed itself to be defrauded by this empty, deceitful philosophy, they could end up exchanging the substance they already possessed in Christ for empty shadows. They had a choice. They would have a choice. And without realizing it, they may end up choosing the shadows and give up in having the substance. They could end up exchanging their freedom in Christ for bondage to deceitful, contrived ideologies. Hence Paul's warning against them, being taken captive by empty, deceitful philosophy. Being taken in by philosophy might seem unlikely in our modern Western thinking. We don't think of this as a threat. We don't think of this as a significant um, game changer in the 21st century world. Simply because we view philosophy in a very different way to the way it was viewed in the first century Judeo-Greco-Roman world. They view philosophy in a very different way. Think of ourselves in a 21st century scenario. It would be hard to think of functioning in a 21st century environment without the means of scientific interventions. Every avenue of modern civilization is built around a scientific framework. We believe science holds the answer to all things. That's the driving uh, game changer in our current society. Science has the answer to all things, we are told. There are countless examples of good science being applied in logical ways that yield benefits for mankind that are great, and we acknowledge that. Not all science is bad. There are many ways that science has enhanced our lives and made it easier and better and, and just made things so different. Think of where we would be without cell phone communication. I wouldn't be able to phone my wife five times and then ask how she's doing. Think of what we do without pacemakers. Think of what we do without microwave ovens. I mean, we'd be eating frozen food all the time. What about antibiotics? Uh, when used correctly and applied, it's, it's, a, it, it's, it's amazing. Science has given us space travel, prosthetic limbs, non-invasive surgery. And on and on and on, there's good science. It's science that we live with because it enhances our lives. We cannot imagine a world in which science would be seen as inconsequential. Almost every argument put forth today seeks to be, seeks to be true or prove itself true based on science. But not all science is good science. We get the bad thrown in with the good, and many people cannot tell the difference. Some examples which you're all aware of. As we all know, 
Dinosaurs went extinct when a comet struck the Earth 65 million years ago. Has to be true, but evolution tells us that. Global temperatures are rising because of increased man-made carbon emissions. Has to be true. 93% of all scientists agree. A man can give birth. That's a new one. And to say differently makes you a bigot, a racist, and a science denier. We live our lives every day engaging with science and mixed in with the good science that we benefit from is also bad science. But all science is good science, and the world has become a dangerous, threatening place because of the fact that people have become conditioned to be affirming of all things claimed to be based on science. People are either too scared to disagree or, more frighteningly, not able to tell the difference. The outcomes of society are frightening if we continue to allow bad science to inform our day-to-day decision-making without realizing that we are capitulating to bad science. This is precisely the point the Apostle Paul makes in Colossians chapter 2 verse 8. The big difference is that Paul lived in a world not driven by science, but the world driven by philosophy. Just think of Acts chapter 17. We go there so often, and we, 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 we should think about the context. Acts 17, Paul has come to Athens, and Paul uh, is caused to go and meet with uh, philosophers uh, of the school of uh, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Uh, this is the think tank of Athens. This is where things that happened in Athens was being thought about, discussed, and eventually promulgated. This was an Athenian uh, a think tank. And that was typical of the day. Everything that took place was filtered through some philosophical school or the other. And as with good and bad science in our day, in Paul's day there was good and bad philosophy. And the philosophy that threatened the Colossian church was the bad type. Which Paul describes it, empty and deceitful. And it was empty and deceitful because it was according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. We come once again to a, a difficult portion in Colossians. Colossians seems to be peppered with difficult portions. And this particular portion we come to now has presented difficulty to many uh, Bible scholars, and as you read their commentaries on this section, you see it as they not only kind of want to dance around some of uh, the concepts they put forward, but they land very often on different places. And, but we have to go through God's Word, and we have to come away with an understanding as best as we can from what God's Word teaches us, so that we know how this teaching not only is true of the Colossian church, but how these teachings can apply to our lives. Paul does not identify who the persons are who are attempting to introduce error into the Colossian church. Neither does he specify the particulars of the error of the, or the heresy. In other, in other epistles, he makes it very clear. In Galatians, he makes the, 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 the problems clear, and he deals with that. In Corinthians, he makes it clear on so many different levels. In fact, in Corinthians, we know that he was told by those who were in the church what the problems were. So the church itself identified its problems, had gone to the apostle for, for teaching, for correction, 
And Paul comes in and he addresses specific problems and he gives them what God intends they should do. But not in Colossians, it's a little different. And we find that we're going to have to find some of what is, what is happening by seeing what is said in the epistle. He simply says that the basis for this deceitful philosophy is human tradition. And the content of that tradition is characterized as the elemental spirits of the world. But what is this human tradition that he speaks about? The very fact that Paul gives little detail here must imply that the recipients of his letter knew exactly what he was referring to. He doesn't say to them what it is, he doesn't explain it. So they must have been very aware what he was speaking about. What Paul does tell us is that this human tradition stands in opposition to Christ, and this is critical. This is indeed the point Paul works up to. He has already worked away from chapter 1 and the preeminence of Christ. He's taken them through their good standing in Christ. He warns them now of, of being uh, exposed to an empty, deceitful philosophy which could draw them away from Christ. And it's all going to bring it back to Christ to show them again that Christ is sufficient for them in all things. This is critical. We see something very similar in Mark chapter 7 where Jesus rebukes the Pharisees and the scribes when he says something like this in chapter Mark chapter 7 verse 6. He says, Well, did Isaiah the prophet, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. Teaching the doctrines, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men, you leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. The very same phrase. And so there's a tension between the tradition of men and the commandment of God. And it seems that, as in the case of the Pharisees and the scribes, they had made their choice. They had followed that they are following the traditions of men, the traditions of the elders. And Jesus says that you do that. Uh, and stand in danger of leaving the commandment of God. That words that Jesus says to them in verse 8 of, 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 the, of the gospel, you leave the command of God and hold to the tradition of men, it ends in the same way that as the words that Paul used in, the, in verse 8 of chapter 2. The Pharisees and scribes were more intent on obeying the tradition of the elders, but for nothing of rejecting God. And this is Paul's concern about the Colossian church. That they may be caught up so in a false teaching, in an attractive philosophy that gets put in by plausible arguments that they may end up rejecting God because it end up disallowing uh, Christ in their lives. These Pharisees in, um, in Mark's gospel and scribes were more intent on obeying of elders, they had allowed human traditions to come in and displace the worship of God. This marking reference makes human tradition a significantly, a significantly Jewish one. We read that. It's the scribes and the Pharisees, and they are looking at the traditions of their elders. In fact, the reference to tradition occurs 13 times in the New Testament, and we will want to look at that very quickly to see if we can identify how Paul uses that term here in Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. In three of the references, it is used by Paul to refer to apostolic teaching. 1 Corinthians 11, 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 15, 2 Thessalonians 3 verse 6. The meaning there is unmistakable. Paul speaks to these believers at Corinth, 
and in Thessalonica about the teachings they received from the apostles. So in that case, it is good teaching. It's a good tradition. It's a tradition that, they, that was needed to build up the saints. Eight of the remaining references appear either in Matthew or Mark, and is used in connection with specifically a Jewish tradition. One time Paul uses this word tradition in reference to his exceptional progress in Judaism. Galatians chapter 1 verse 14. So those, uh, those nine references all have this Jewish link to what this tradition means. The last reference is found here in Colossians chapter 2 verse 8. And it's not attached directly to either Judaism nor apostolic teaching. Paul puts it out there and they apparently know exactly what he's speaking about. So to which category do we allocate this so we can understand what is Paul speaking about? Where do we place it? We may find some help with identifying what this human condition is when we look at the next phrase in Colossians chapter 2 verse 8, which says this, according to the elemental spirits of the world. Those two go together. And there's a huge debate about what this term, the elemental spirits of the world, refers to. And there are three or maybe four views of what they could mean. And these are the four views that's put forth by Bible scholars as you try and get understanding of what Paul was speaking about in the Colossian context. So number one, the basic elements could be referring to the basic elements of the world. That's earth, air, fire, and water. Almost sounds like a name of a, of a rock group. Earth, wind, fire. I'm <laughs> showing my age. Sorry about that. The basic elements of the world. Secondly, it could be referring to the heavenly bodies composed of these basic elements. And some see those as two, and some see those as combined. Or it could be referring to the elementary teachings or principles of the world. Or fourthly, it could be referring to the elementary spirits of the universe, that's demons and angels and spirits. And this one takes on very often a, it's almost a go-to uh, um, interpretation because of Paul's use of demons and uh, reference to demons and angels and spirits in this particular epistle. So how do we reach an understanding of a text that's otherwise obscure? It just so happens that Paul uses this phrase again in the same epistle. And it's helpful when a phrase we're trying to understand is used elsewhere in the New Testament. It's even better if it's used by the same author in another book. But when the author uses that same phrase in the book he's writing on, I think we can't ignore that. I think we need to use that as a means of understanding what he's saying. And if he's a bit clearer in the one phrase, uh, perhaps he'll help us understand what the other means. So with that, I'll ask you to turn to chapter 2 and verse 16 of the same book of Colossians, 2 verse 16. We can't unpack the passage this morning. Uh, that will be left for another sermon. But the subject matter in this section helps understand what Paul is saying in verse 8 about elemental spirits of the world and by inference, the meaning of human tradition. Colossians 2 verse 16, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. So at least the word Sabbath should start triggering us to thinking, well, this sounds as though it needs to be attached to a Jewish or a Judaistic uh, context. Verse 17, and these things that we read about in verse 16 
are significant because the 17 says these are shadows or a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. And we know clearly that the things have taken place within the nation of Israel uh, happened in ways that foreshadowed the coming Messiah and his work was the antitype of all the types and shadows that were evident in uh, in the nation of Israel and in their and in their in their in their worship and in the system that they had uh, lived under. Let no one disqualify you, Paul says here, insisting on asceticism and worship of angels. This is why angels sometimes has an attraction to people. Going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind, and not only fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with the growth that is from God. Verse 20, and so I want to link what I've just read in verse 16 and down to verse 20. Verse 20, if with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, use the phrase here again, and we're going to need to bring those two together at some point. If not now, it's certainly in detail later on. If with Christ you die to the elemental spirits of the world, eh, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do submit to regulations? Do not handle. Do not taste. Do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used, according to human precepts and teaching. So we find that the elemental spirits of the world, as used by Paul in Colossians, certainly in verses 16 to 20, is attached to something about observing certain things that were specifically Judaistic. And again, is brought into uh, a context of being doing things with hands and tasting and see rules brought into place, things brought into place of precepts and teachings that impact how humans behave. It appears from this passage that the elemental spirits of the world have a clear link to Jewish practices, and by submitting to human teaching and regulations, they'd be living according to the elemental spirits of the world. There's a great temptation to try and draw into Colossians a teaching that is founded more on a Greek philosophy than on a Judaistic theology. There's a very strong temptation to bring in a Gnostic teaching when it, it may be here in, 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 in inception form. There, is, there are certain things about this which certainly is evident in Gnosticism, which becomes fully-fledged more in the second century and under a different school. But here is something that is creeping in that was familiar to the people in the Lycus Valley. Remember that the church, the church in the Lycus Valley um, had a very large uh, contingent of Jewish members. Uh, a lot of Jews had been dispersed to the Lycus Valley. And so this church would have had both Gentiles and Jews within their mix. And there was still a strong Jewish influence in that area. And so it's not unreasonable to assume that there were certain Judaizers or people with strong Judaizing lineage of Judaism want to bring in those things and appeal to their flesh rather than which elevated Christ as being all in all. There's a quote from a... A, 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 a popular commentator. The spiritual confidence or the spiritual confidence tricksters against whom they are put on the God, speaking about the Colossian church, we put on the God against tricksters, 
did not inculcate did not inculcate a godless or immoral way of life. They weren't bringing in things that were going to be obviously wrong to the Colossian believers. The teaching was rather a blend of the highest elements of religion known to Judaism and paganism. It was a mix, an unholy mix that looked good, that kind of looked familiar, that kind of tasted like it was perhaps not too bad, and very soon that kind of mix would come in and it would displace that which was essential for the church to survive, essential for saints to remain uh, focused and committed in the spiritual walk with Christ, that is being focused on Christ. It's easy to have things displace him when the things that we are, that we, that we are attracted to seem to be so nice, so good, so benign. Uh, how wrong can it be to just do this? Let's just get back to, to verse 8 of chapter 2. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. The end of verse 8 makes it clear why Paul's warning at the beginning of this verse is so forceful. Paul wasn't saying to them, listen guys, be a little bit careful of what you're doing. His instruction, it's imperative, was forceful. Beware. Look out. Danger ahead. It was not only that the philosophy was empty and deceitful, but its very intention was to take them away from Christ. And that was Paul's end game, to keep them focused on Christ and that they may not be allured and drawn away by empty philosophy. The empty, deceitful philosophy was not neutral, nor was it harmless. The philosophy stood directly opposed to Christ. It was not according to Christ. In that short antithetical phrase, Paul denounces everything that the false teachers could hope to achieve at Colossae. He had put Colossae on warning. They had been notified. They had been alerted. Red flags had been raised. And so Paul prepares them. And when this comes in, recognize it for what it is. Empty, deceitful philosophy. Something which has no substance and is found in a built on shadows that can provide you with nothing that is of substance, as Christ has done, can do, and will continue to do till you are taken to glory. So to sum up what we have just said, Paul has encouraged these believers in their walk in Christ Jesus the Lord. He's encouraged them, he's reminded them that they are rooted and built up in Christ. He has commanded them to, uh, he has commended them rather for being established in the faith. And he has now warned them that despite the fact that they were evidently solidly saved and secured in Christ, there was danger of them being led astray. Or more correctly, in danger of being convinced in a deceitful way by an empty philosophy based on human traditions to turn to something that had no reality instead of continuing to walk according to Christ. These traditions would take over their lives if they were to submit to the elemental spirits of the world, which would lead them to turn to teachings that appear to be acceptable, but were contrary to Christ. A real warning, a real danger, nothing to be taken with a pinch of salt. So we've seen how uh, this church um, had to face an onslaught of something which could damage him. The second part of the sermon is being complete in Christ. And Paul doesn't leave them there, but Paul takes it to show them that what they are, what is true in their lives 
is far more than they could, than they could receive from any philosophical source. What was true in their lives was something that only could be acquired by the grace of God working in their lives. What they had was real. They could not have held it in their hands. It was not necessarily tangible. It was not something they could see with their eyes, but it was something that was as real to them as the very bodies they lived in. Verse 9 and verse 10 shows why Christ is all that the Colossian believers need, not human tradition, but Christ and only Christ. And Paul gives two reasons why Christ is sufficient. The first relates to the fullness of Christ, verse 9, for in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Paul has already presented us early in this letter with the truth that the fullness of God dwelt in him. Colossians chapter 1, verse 1, and I'll read this to you. May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father, was qualified you to share in the, in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son. So we hear, are here reading about a relation and an interaction between the Father and the Son. And it says that he, the Father, has transferred us, the Colossian church, and us to the, to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And then picking up on that, that thought, that declaration of his beloved Son, Paul then goes into that beautiful passage so often called the Christological hymn. Verse 15 down to verse 23, where Paul says this about Christ, the one to whom he's pointing and directing the attention of the Colossian church. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones, dominions, or rules, authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If you for any moment in your life thought that this world came about because of a big bang and it's held together by chance, you are sorely mistaken. You have before you right here in Colossians something which, if only the world could grasp, would change the entire face of several scientific departments. That if you throw away the things they have come to believe, that have wasted billions of dollars on empty studies, if they only believe this, that the world does not exist because it was a big bang, but the world exists because Christ created it. Christ holds it together. And if it lets go of it for a moment, it will cease to be. He's before all things, and in him all things are together. This, Paul says to the Colossian church, this is the substance that you have, not philosophy, empty and deceitful as it is. And Paul says more than that. He's the head of the body of the church. He's the beginning of the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, for in him, here's the phrase, here's the clause, here's the statement, for in him all the fools of God was pleased to dwell. That's a tremendous statement. A tremendous statement. Chapter 1, verse 4 to 14, reminds us of the work of the Father in salvation. In verse 15, we transition into the work of the Son, both in his headship over creation and his headship of the church. This is Christ. In all his glory. It's called the preeminence of Christ. That portion is Christ in both his creatorial authority and in his authority over the church. In every sense, he is supreme. Verse 18 states in chapter 1 that in everything he might be preeminent. And verse 19 makes it clear that the reason we can claim that he can claim total headship over all things, including, including you and me, whether in a creatorial sense or in a salvific sense, 
is because in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That is the saying. In him the Father was pleased to dwell. In him the Father was pleased to dwell. I'm speaking about the person of the Father. For confirmation of that glorious truth, we need to turn to another scripture, and I'll read it to you because of time. John chapter 14. We had this truth presented to the disciples by none other than the Lord Jesus himself. They themselves were confused about when they're going to see the Father. Jesus has been walking with him for years. And they say to Jesus, through the mouth of Philip, show us the Father. Verse 8 of John chapter 14, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it's enough for us. It wasn't enough that they'd seen Christ for three years. It wasn't enough that they saw the miracles. It wasn't enough that they saw the, the, the feeding of the thousands. It wasn't enough that they saw the raising of the dead. They still wanted to see more. Show us the Father. We've only seen you. Show us the Father. Jesus says to him, Have I been so long with you, or have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Here's the... Here is the crux of what Paul is saying in Colossians. Do you not know that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the work. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. There is no doubt, either from Paul's teaching, Paul's epistles, or from the words of the Lord Jesus himself, there's no doubt that the Father indwelt the Son. But is this what Paul is saying in chapter 2, verse 9? We know he's saying that in chapter 1, verse 19. That's clear. Paul is saying in chapter 1, verse 19, that the Father indwells the Son. The Father, who is a person within the Godhead, indwells the Son, who is a person within the Godhead. There's no doubt that that's what he's teaching. But is he saying that here in verse 9 of chapter 2, where he says, For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Paul uses a word here that forces us to think about the Lord Jesus in a very specific way. It is the word bodily. It's in his bodily form. The indwelling of deity in, in Colossians 2 verse 9 is a stated fact that is actively valid and in force at the present time. For in him... The whole fullness of deity is dwelling, dwells body, which means at this present moment in time, that truth continues to be in force. Right now, our great high priest sits at the right hand of the Father in his glorified body. This means that while the Son sits next, sits next to the Father, he's presently being indwelt by the fullness of deity. This is a clear statement about the deity of Christ. He's not like a God. He's not God-like. He's not one of the many gods that was, uh, it was, was worshipped in the pantheon of gods of the Greek uh, and the Roman societies. He wasn't just another God, small g. He is in every way, in every divine sense, actually God, Jesus Christ is God. Not only is he indwelt by the Father, but is indwelt by the very essence of deity. And this divine essence was not acquired at the resurrection or ascension. Did we not read him saying these words when he was still alive, before he was crucified? 
So at that point in time, already he's confessing and declaring that God indwelled, the Father indwells him. This was not something that he acquired at the resurrection or ascension. It filled him fully, bodily, from the moment of his birth. That holy thing that would, be con- that would be conceived of you, the angel tells Mary, will be called the Son of the Most High. God with us, Emmanuel. So we learn two things from Paul. Number one, the unique relationship between the Lord Jesus and the Father was that Jesus the Son was indwelt by God the person, that is the Father. And this we can find uh, born in Colossians chapter 1 verse 19, John chapter 14 verses 10 to 11. Number two, he tells us the second thing, Christ was not only dwelt by the person of God, he was also dwelt by the being of God. And we need to keep those things clearly in our minds. We cannot ask for a clearest statement about the deity of Christ when we, get, then we have in Colossians chapter 1 and Colossians chapter 2. It wraps it up for us in a nutshell. This is the Christ that Paul presents to the Colossian church as being supremely more eminent than any philosophy they could draw from the world. As we draw to a close, we need to consider the falling, the filling of the saints. Verse 10 says, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. What are we to make of verse 10? Because, because Paul places this directly off his teaching of the indwelling of Christ by deity must be an indication that they are linked. It keeps them together. It keeps them totally in, as, as a single thought. In other words, there's something about God indwelling Christ that is reflecting Christ indwelling us. Because Christ is in God, he lacks nothing. In fact, the very opposite is to, or, or, or rather when we say that Christ had to have God so that he could lack nothing, the very opposite is to. We've already seen in chapter 1 that not only did he create all things, but all things altogether in him. Jesus Christ didn't need the Father to make him God. Jesus Christ had a relationship with the Father because he is God. They were communicating on the same level in every sense of the word that we can conceptualize of. The completeness of his divine nature and his divine attributes qualify him to uniquely be the one and only, the monogamous. And here in verse 10, Paul confirms that by declaring that he is the head of rule, of all rule and authority. There is no way in which Christ needs to be made complete. So his fullness is not an indication of a process of completion in him. It's a declaration of his complete and unchallenged deity. And between those thoughts, Paul brings in this. But we are not complete. We are in the process of being made complete. Philippians chapter 1 verse 6. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Different words, same thought. So just as the fullness of God in Christ is a declaration of a unique, inseparable relationship between the Father and the Son, so the filling of Christ in us is confirmation of a unique and inseparable union between Christ and ourselves. And it's essential in bringing us to completion. We need to be completed. We need to grow more and more in the image of Christ. We need to move on to glorification. Christ is glorified. Not only is he glorified, but he is glorious. We are not that. And so when we are filled with Christ, it is, it is one of the ways that God has, has, de- has decreed that we are, because of that infilling of Christ, 
we are being brought to completion. It's essential for us to be brought to completion. If this is true of the Colossian believers, and it was, why would they want to be drawn away by empty, deceitful philosophy? It's a no-brainer, so to say, to use a modern colloquial term. They did not need empty, deceitful philosophy. All they needed was Christ. The point Paul is making is that not only all that they needed was Christ, but they already <clears throat> had Christ. They were in him, and he was in them, and that bond is unbreakable. That bond between us and Christ, no one can separate. What God has put together in this sense will never be broken down. We will always be in Christ, and he will always be in, in us, and it will be a day coming when we who are his will have reached a completion in the sense that we will be glorified our bodies will be changed into spiritual bodies like he now has and we will be with him and look in his face and what we now only see uh, through the word what we now we only understand by faith what now only we have embraced because of what the word of God has told us and because our faith in the word and our faith in Christ what now we only long for will become a reality in a way which cannot be now but it does not mean it's not a reality now already. We have Christ. We are in Christ. And He is in us. And that is something Paul has told the Colossian believers. Do not lose sight. And he's going to go through this in the next few verses by telling him in which way. What we have in Him. What we have with Him. What we have through Him. And Paul's going to unpack a, 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 a number of things that will reinforce what he starts to say in chapter 2, verses 8 to 10. Where does that leave us? What about us? Is that only for the Colossian believers? Or is it significant in our lives today? Well, while we may believe that we are a, a nation, uh, a civilization, a society that uh, is able to tell the difference between good science and bad science, perhaps we're not so strong when it comes to good ideologies and bad ideologies, good philosophies and bad philosophies. And things are being put before us which seems so plausible, so reasonable. Surely, Jesus has said, love your neighbor as yourself. Surely, Jesus told us to be loving and gracious and kind like he is. And he has, and we should be. But we allow that when it's presented to us in a certain way, in a certain context, to say, well, maybe we should not be so hard on people who are not sure of their gender. Maybe God does have a way of affirming people who are gay. Maybe God did possibly make that way. Are we sure that we can depend on just one or two verses in Genesis to wrap our theology on? And so very soon we find we think of that. And we make accommodation for that. We've gone through a whole series of showing you how the culture has come in. And churches that once stood on the firm foundation of the truth. Once churches that stood on the foundation of Christ. And that we, where he was seen as the supreme and only Lord. Had given in. Had capitulated. Had been taken over by plausible arguments. Reasonable discussions. And they have allowed to come into their midst. Things that are not of Christ. And thousands of people are being led astray. We see this every day, and we're taken in by it. Perhaps it's, it's not so bad to, 
to just obey authority. We've seen this and we've experienced this. We allow plausible arguments to be brought in on a biblical basis and we let our guards down. We are told you cannot meet together as a church because you need to obey the authority of the land. Yes, says our brothers and sisters. Romans 13 tells us that we need to obey and submit to authorities. Surely it's a biblical truth. How can you not obey it? And taken in that of context and placing authority of men over authority of God, many of our brothers and sisters were sucked in by a plausible argument, by reasonable um, uh, um, thinking. And they said, well, maybe just uh, do this so we can honor both God and authority. And we are wrong. And in place of Christ, they placed their own human reasoning. They brought in some, some human tradition and they tried to see how they could have a foot in both theological camps. And they can't. And so we saw how this plausible arguments came in amongst us. And we ourselves were in so many ways caught about. This is a warning to us. We should not allow these plausible things that we are hearing day in and day out to come in and make us just drop our guard a little bit. Maybe the Doberman is not as vicious as it looks. Maybe the teeth are not real. Maybe the drool is not quite as frightening as it looks. Maybe I can pat his head. Just maybe. You walk away with one hand or one arm. That is the danger of, the, of, the, of that problem if you ignore the warning signs. Paul says, beware. Be on your alert. Protect yourselves with that which is a reality. Protect yourselves with Christ, which is why he's going to tell them, this is what you have in him. This is what you have with him. This is what you have through him. It's only because of him that you are able to survive and, and thrive and be prosperous and fruitful in a world that will continually pound your ears and your mind and your heart with empty, deceitful philosophy. We don't need that. We need to be aware. We need to be careful. We need to be conscious of this fact that the world is out there to take us away from the only one, the only one on whom we can depend, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Jesus Christ, God himself. Jesus Christ who is not only indwelt by the Father, but indwelt by the fullness of deity. And this is the one that Paul says, this is the Christ that you should be, uh, uh, be subscribing to, not to the empty, deceitful, Philosophy of the world is built on human tradition that's, that's, that obeys the elemental principles of the world and that takes you away from that which was provided for you by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, which was ratified by his resurrection from uh, the dead and will be made gloriously clear to us when he comes again. May the, may the warning to the Colossian church be a warning to us. Today in which we find ourselves, may our children be guarded, May we indeed at all times focus on that which is important in our lives, that we honor Christ, that we give him the rightful place in our hearts, in our lives, in our decision-making, in the things we do, in the things we believe that he may be all and in all. And in that way, we will indeed reject the philosophy of the world and we will bow to Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy in our lives. We thank you that as we live a life in a world that is devoid of 
righteousness and justice and holiness in a world that continually walks in in darkness as a walk without Christ. We thank you that you have taken us out of this world. You transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son. You have made him the a reality in our lives in a way which we don't fully comprehend. And we look forward to a day when we will be with him and like him. Look upon his face, the ancient of days. Look upon his face and hear his voice and be able to thank him, glorify him, worship him with all that is due unto his holy name. We pray this in his name and for his sake alone. Amen.